Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Was Kevin Rudd wrong? No. Kevin Rudd's heart and intent was in the right place. Even though he's on the other side, what we have to think about is the intent and genuine commitment to wanting to make a difference. Kevin Rudd didn't fail in this. We all failed. At every level, we failed. Now, when we had our 10th year of failure of uh, not meeting all of the targets, then there was a discussion around, oh, right, we can't keep doing what we're doing. Hello, good people of pods, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. I am Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and with me in the studio this week is the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt. Ken, thanks for coming on. It's great to be with you, Catherine. These podcasts are always very informative, and I do listen to some of them when I get the chance. Well, it's just, it's a good, we can just relax and have a conversation rather than sort of surf the eight-minute interview, and these are big, weighty issues that we're talking about today. So this week we had the uh, the latest Closing the Gap report presented to Parliament. Now, to cut a long story short, that uh, that snapshot indicates that I think only two of the seven targets have been met. Now, I want to start with the refresh because I reckon a lot of people listening to this program won't necessarily have followed the debate around resetting the whole closing the gap process. So I I just want to start with this question. So the Prime Minister told Parliament this week that the targets as they stand presented uh, too negative a picture, they don't celebrate achievement, a recitation of the targets don't tell us how realistic they were in the first place. Now, I get that and we can get into the whys and wherefores of that, but it does sound slightly like if the data isn't telling you what you want to hear, then you change the data. No, you don't change the data. What you look at is using data to ascertain why things aren't working, why we have failed. And that's a critical aspect to the whole refresh uh, approach. It's what, what is it that you want to change that's critical to the lives of Indigenous Australians. Now, I want to acknowledge Tom Calmer because initially it was Tom Calmer and Oxfam who pulled together their thoughts on the gap and it came out of Tom's role as commissioner for the Human Rights Commissioner and with responsibility for Indigenous Australians. And Tom started the process and I know that he was heavily involved in discussions with numerous Indigenous leaders. I, I attended one of his forums and then ultimately he had the discussions with Kevin Rudd who adopted the Closing the Gap strategy and it was co-signed by Brendan Nelson in the Great Hall. Mm. 
So the context there was, let's look at key areas that we can make a difference in, because if we target those, then at least we've got some chance. Now, what sadly has happened is you have multiple layers in this as to who delivers. And at the state and territory level, many of these are delivered, but they're also non-government organisations and Aboriginal community controlled services that are part of the whole uh, tapestry of how we achieve these targets. Now, when we had our 10th year of failure of uh, not meeting all of the targets, then there was a discussion around, oh, right, we can't do, keep doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So let's refresh the targets and let's turn them into measurable targets that will cause us to go back and look at regional data and how we impact on regions of Australia, but also the overarching data that will make a difference in achieving outcomes. But we've also, and I premise this on what a group of young people in the Kimberley told me at the Kimberley Suicide Roundtable. They said, every time we hear something about us, it's either a disparity conversation or it's a failing. You Mm. always fail. Mm. And in talking with the PM last year uh, in with Minister Scullion, I said, why don't we turn that around and celebrate the successes? And if we achieve a 60% level of attainment in any of the measures, then let's say that's 60% of Indigenous Australians that we have made a difference to. So let's aim next year for 65% and make every endeavour across this country to do that. It was a strategy we used in education many years ago and we, we, by doing that we made gains because it forced us to try and achieve the next 5%. And so we then used strategies in the implementation process to do that. And I'm hoping we can do that with this because I do want to celebrate uh, the 95% of uh, Indigenous children being enrolled in the early years because that's a foundation year on the journey to education. But we've got to go back before that and look at how we involve parents as first educators in building the vocab of children, or vocabulary of children, so that they're in a position to uh, hold their own within classrooms with literacy and ultimately numeracy. I, I, look, I totally get that. I totally get that from the point of view of Indigenous people, the way their, their representation in public debate is exactly as those kids in the Kimberley presented it to you, right? That, it is. That, like, we, we have to acknowledge that. But I suppose my concern is being uh, being here at the time when Kevin Rudd and Brendan Nelson set up that process, it was a process, I believe, uh, that was designed really to put pressure on governments to actually do something rather than talk about doing something. It was an attempt to bring a problem into the spotlight so that there would be incentives for people uh, in in public life and for organisations to really double down and try and fix these issues. So I, I, I completely get why, why it's useful to reframe the debate and it's, and it's good to look at data in that granular way at regional levels and push, as you say, through the next 5%. It's just, can you reassure me that this is not some stepping off of effort? Because it's uh, that's that's the that's what I would have some concern about. Just looking at it externally. No, no, no. It's not stepping off of effort at all. What's been good about this time around 
is that the Prime Minister wanted to involve Indigenous Australians in the conversations around closing the gap. So he reached out and the, the, peak, uh, the Alliance of Peak Organisations, Indigenous Organisations, met with the Prime Minister. And what we established was a joint council co-chaired by Pat Turner, who is the CEO of NACHO, or the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, and myself, but with state and territory ministers sitting at the table with Indigenous people. And those discussions have been around how do we collectively implement the next phase of closing the gap, but more importantly, there was a lot of discussion around accountability and that all of us need to be accountable for achieving those targets and where we don't achieve them, be accountable for the fact that we did not close the gap on that initiative within our areas of responsibility. I think that's the paradigm shift. The challenge will be the implementation across the geographic diversity of this nation. So if we think of capital cities, it's much easier. But once we start getting to Balgo, Kirikura, the tri-state regions of South Australia, Docker River, parts of Cape York, it becomes more challenging in terms of the people with the skills that you need on the ground in those communities. So we have to look at a community development component within this as well and engage communities far better. And there is a community in the Northern Territory that were tackling, and I'll give an example of this, had a child die suddenly on the way to school. He, they tried to revive him and couldn't. What they discovered, it, he had um, rheumatic heart disease. The community had a meeting. They invited the nephrologist and a cardiologist to come and talk with them. They had the conversation. They then had a better understanding of rheumatic heart disease and what the challenges were. Then they asked the school if the school could teach about rheumatic heart disease. And so uh, people with experience and knowledge work with the school and with the community, and they produced a short uh, video that showed what rheumatic heart disease was, how you... Um, got the bacteria that causes pneumococcal A and what that, how that causes rheumatic heart disease. But at the end of the program, uh, they had children self-referring for cuts. They were uh, washing their hands frequently and so on. And, and it's, that was community-driven. So they now have a better understanding of rheumatic heart diseases. So I hope we, what we will see is probably a reduction. Now, if we take just that simple example, then we should be able to turn that into plenty of other examples across the closing the gap measures. Mm -hmm. So was Kevin Rudd wrong? No. Kevin Rudd's heart and intent was in the right place. Even though he's on the other side, what we have to think about is the intent and genuine commitment to wanting to make a difference. Kevin Rudd didn't fail in this. We all failed. At every level, we failed. And so we collectively have to turn this around. And subsequent prime ministers have attempted to up the ante and have us achieve targets. Now, we've got two that are outstanding. The year 12 attainment levels means these kids will go on into tertiary studies and what the data shows is they hold their own in, a, in equivalent outcomes in their tertiary pathways and job um, opportunities is non-Indigenous Australian. So we've got two areas that we've done well in. We now have to turn our minds to the other 
and look at similar parallel activities that will make that difference. And what does, I mean, you've given me an example, so in a way the question's redundant, but I'm, I'm interested if we could drill down slightly more. With Indigenous people at the table in designing this, this new way of measuring uh, progress and attainment across a range of indicators, what is distinctly different about that compared with the status quo? What's the difference? Well, the difference, and let me use the analogy of the Commonwealth with state and territory governments. If we choose an area that we want reform in, then what we do is we jointly plan it. So we will sit down with states and territories and we will jointly plan what the intent of the initiative is. And then we'll reach agreement on how each of us will do it, what we will commit to, and then what we will uh, come back on in terms of the success. Uh, we're going to see that with the Royal Commission into bushfires and mm. what's happened there. Now, in this instance, we do it with local government and many other organisations, but we don't do it with Indigenous Australians. Now, that has shifted in this new refresh approach. The intent, and as I, when I came into this role, one of the first things I said to my agency is we're going to co-design solutions at the community level. We're not going to go in and tell communities, you've got 25,000, this is what we want to do. I want us to identify the challenge and the problem. I want us to become solution brokers, not the facilitators, and then work with the community and then put trust in the community's capacity to deliver with them steering the boat. And do you think the institution of government's got sufficient humility in order to do that? Look, one thing that I have um, noticed in my agency, because I've gone out and talked to uh, the regional managers and teams on the ground, and I've acknowledged that their work has been outstanding in the pressures they face. But I said, I want a paradigm shift. I want us now to think about when we do a particular task with somebody else, we share and we work to a solution. I said, I now need that for Aboriginal communities. And they're starting to do that and I'm seeing that on the ground. Uh, Ray Griggs, as the CEO of the agency, has been tremendous in taking forward practical approaches that will make a difference on the ground. So we're not designing activities anymore from within my office. Mm. We're doing it with the agency leading it at the community level. And that's where I think we will see a lot of gains in a way. But it does take mindset shift. There will be some people who will be reluctant to change the power relationship. And all of us have power relationships with anybody that we interact with. But that, that takes a lot of hard work. But if we achieve that, then I'm confident that we will see progressive reports showing that we've made incremental gains that we should celebrate. Okay. Of the data that's currently before you, what are you most, I mean, this is, sounds a bit fatuous, but what are you, what are you most pleased with? What, what, what pleases you about the picture that you're seeing? And what is the thing that worries you the most about what you're seeing? Infant mortality is of serious concern. 141 per 100,000 is not an acceptable rate in a first world country. What we need to do is make sure that the programs we've got in place are further refined to deliver what we want. And I've seen some great programs, um, AMSANT, Danila Dilba in the Northern Territory, outstanding results from the way they engage with young mothers in the first trimester. 
great birth weights. Well, we've got to replicate that right across the nation, not only in Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, but in mainstream health. The other is the workforce has only increased 0.9%. But what I'm seeing is the private sector now are looking at and having conversations with me about how do they now employ more Indigenous Australians. We've seen it in the mining sector, but they have to be long-term sustainable jobs, not just for the period of a project. Con- contract jobs or whatever. It's got to be salary jobs. Well, or- but even if it's contract jobs, we have Indigenous businesses. Yes, I was in the Great Hall and there are 125 Indigenous businesses. And I was blown away by the diversity of the businesses, but their successes. Now, that's just the ones I've seen. I know that we've got a couple of thousand Indigenous businesses, all at various stages. A lot of them are led by Indigenous women. So we're seeing a shift in their employing Indigenous people. So I'm buoyed by that aspect. Mm-hmm. I certainly want to see the public sector in every tier of government employ more Indigenous people at senior levels, not just at the lower levels, but at senior levels. Corporate Australia has to look at the employment of Indigenous people at the corporate level because it is the modelling of leaders that will impact on people behind because they will see that whoever it is has become a director in a corporate company. If they can do that, I think I can get there. We do it in sport, but we don't do it successfully in any other area. Yeah. Okay. And so that's the concern. Now, what does anything please you on the landscape that you see before you? Oh, look, I think any of the incremental gains we've had does please me. Even a point zero point nine percent increase in employment means there has been an increase when non-Indigenous uh, figures have gone backwards in some areas. I think the work that we're doing now is underpinning pushing out life expectancy. When I first worked in Aboriginal health in 1990, there was a 10-year-plus gap between our people and non-Indigenous Australians. In fact, it was much higher uh, than 10%. I'm seeing figures like 6.8 and 7.8 for men and women. Now, that's a major Mm. reduction. Mm. We're now seeing Aboriginal people living to old age in greater numbers. Uh, Certainly, I saw that from the uh, when I was Minister for Aged Care. And the expectation that we don't die before 50 we are now going to live into our 80s. Um, but there is tragedy. There's all strikes. Stuff. And one thing I do have to tackle is violence in our communities, particularly against women. We could we could go on for the whole conversation about this, really, but I need to ask you a little bit about constitutional recognition, and I have my eye on the time. Um, uh, there is a discussion around the government, obviously, about this issue. That's hardly breaking news. There's been a discussion around the government, some of it playing out in public since the beginning of this process. Uh, there are, look, uh, talking to people around the government, uh, I think there is a group within the government that will not accept constitutional change no matter what it is. So... (laughs) Let me say this. I want to go back to Reconciliation Australia who used to do the barometer testing. What they found was there were 10% of Australia's population were rusted on anti-constitutional recognition. Then there was about a 15% strongly welded on to constitutional recognition, didn't matter what the words were. 
But the majority of Australians are showing their support of the West Austra- Western Australia, who is uh, my home state and is conservative, 73%. Uh, in a uh, West Australian media poll showed that they would support constitutional recognition. Now, in Parliament, we had a similar debate around the same-sex marriage where they were rusted on anti, uh, any reform people. Yeah. And what we saw was when the public had a say, we saw a quantum shift in support for same-sex marriage legislation. Now, there are some colleagues, and I think, even in Labor, there would be some individuals who would be reticent because the way their party structure is, they will support what they agree to. In ours, we have the right to hold a position. And there will be some individuals who, at the moment, hold a position of totally opposing. Mm. Uh, But we're engaging. We've been engaging for some time. We're not dealing with constitutional recognition at the moment. We're looking at the voice. There are three Uh, groups that are working on this and I want to have a reflection of how do we listen to people at the community level because every time I go out I see problems with health, water, infrastructure, uh, the environment elements out there and when I sit and talk with people they chastise me for us not listening to them Mm. and they said it doesn't matter whether it's you or whether it's other ministers that come here you don't listen to us. And we have the same problem year in, year out. But you're, uh, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, representative democracy is about people in the parliament listening to their communities. But uh, uh, as I look, as I diagnose this hastily, you've got a, a group of colleagues, a, a number of them in the Senate. So with all due respect to the senators of this place, they don't actually have constituents. So their feedback, if we if we put this... Uh, gently, uh, constructively, I is, can be is, brittle. is well, but but it's more diffuse, right? You don't if you if you represent a seat in the lower house as you do, you have a bunch of constituents who turn up in your office every five minutes needing things. You've got a direct line into your communities. In terms of this debate and the coalition, and we've had iterations of this debate the whole time I have been a journalist in this place, so I have a reasonable sense of the dynamics within your party. Yeah. Uh, there are there are you know mainly but not all senators who don't have a direct line to constituents. So that listening process that you're implicitly saying to your colleagues, please listen to the public. They don't, they're not exposed to it, and they have very strong philosophical views about not changing the constitution. So I, you're saying to me, Ken, implicitly, once we put this before the public, the public will support it on current evidence. But you have actually got to get it before the public. You've got to get it through your own party room. How do you? How do you think? Oh, no, you... no, no. I'm not reckoning. Time. What I was using was the barometer is showing that there is strong support. Yeah. The issue that I have is I need to work this through with everybody in the parliament. Correct. And we are consulting, and there have been a series of meetings with individuals who do not support constitutional recognition. Is there any way you can change their minds? Look, I've got to respect that there will be individuals who may take an absolutely rock-solid position that they will not budge. And that'll be part of the debate and they'll have the right to mount a no argument. But we have a process in which this will go. And we're not dealing with the constitution at the moment. Uh, We're dealing with the voice. But when we do deal with the constitution, that will go to the party room. Mm. And then from the party room, uh, and in that process, there will be cabinet discussions as well because they run parallel. 
But ultimately, once the party room ticks off and cabinet ticks off, then we will go with whatever it is we're proposing. There will be discussions with the opposition. The challenge that prevails is those who want the Uluru Statement fully immersed. Well, you've got a problem versus, on, yes. Yeah. Well, you've got a problem on two fronts. You've got a problem with uh, in the Indigenous community who want the Uluru Statement entirely replicated in what the government comes out with and the Prime Minister's already made that clear that's not going to happen, at least not yet. Then you've got the colleagues problem. So just sticking with the colleagues for the moment, because that's more in my territory, that's more in my wheelhouse. So uh, are, are you saying that uh, with the sort with the constitutional, uh, the, the, the folks in your show who don't support constitutional change, regardless of what it is, that when this comes to the parliament, when the enabling legislation for the referendum comes, you expect some people will oppose it, some people will cross the floor and not support it. I, look, I, I think the reality is, and I have to be brutally real, is that there will be some colleagues who won't support it. And they may uh, run a very strong no campaign. Mm. But if we go through that process and we reach that point, I have every faith in Australia in them exercising their right to make a decision. This is about giving them the right to make a decision and this is about the right of colleagues who may not support constitutional recognition to also appeal to the same constituency. On a no basis, we will mount the yes basis as is normal in uh, constitutional recognition. And then whatever the Australian people decide, will prevail because we need the majority of Australians and the majority of states and ter territories to be successful. Now, if it doesn't look as though it's successful, as I've said right at the beginning, we don't take it forward. But uh, I think there is a changing appetite in our nation uh, that is a, of a much more positive nature than sometimes uh, we realise uh, in the Canberra bubble. Mm. Oh, God, don't say that word, Ken. I hate that word. Yeah, I, I, I normally don't use it, but I think there are times when the context in which we operate is a very unique environment. It is one that when you come into this place first thing in the morning, you don't see the rest of the world until you leave at 9 or 10 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Yes, 2 o'clock in the morning, yeah. Uh, and what you see is the dark sky, the light you turn on before you flop into bed and then you're up again. And so that element is a factor in that impacts. But I'm going to continue to have discussions with all colleagues. Uh, I had a particular individual come and see me. We talked about how I'd separate the, uh, separated the work of the voice from constitutional recognition. At the end of that discussion, he said, I would like to help you, I'd like to work with you. I may not agree with the words you have for constitutional recognition, but I'd like to work to make the voice happen. I'd like to also con um, have discussions with you on the consideration of words. And, I, and that, that, was, that was something I least expected from that individual. Mm. Are, you very, are you entirely confident that, you've, that, the, that the Prime Minister is absolutely vested in this process? If, as seems likely and you have acknowledged, it comes to the point where the differences, at least with some people in the government, are irreconcilable, that you know, various people are saying, sorry, you can bring this forward if you like, but 
I won't be supporting it and, in fact, I'll be campaigning against it. Are you entirely confident that the Prime Minister won't say, oh, God, this will split the government, we don't need this, uh, and, and in essence defer it? I mean, you talk to him all the time. You've got a much better sense. Oh, look, the Prime Minister provided me with a charter letter constitutional recognition, the voice and truth-telling are in that charter it's letter. It's in your letter. And that letter is the priority focus that I have to work on as a minister. Now, if he didn't have some degree of support for it, he would never have put it in my charter letter. We put it up as a policy statement pre the election so people, when they voted, knew what our policies were. The Prime Minister has been extremely supportive and he and I do talk and we are concerned that elements uh, within society and including individuals within our party will fight us on this. But we want to take a very pragmatic way forward. And what I don't want to do is take to a constitutional referendum a question that will fail. Because once a question fails, I've not seen them ever resurrected again. No, no, that's, well, I mean, dreadful cliche, but the stakes are very high. You do, oh, they are. You do. Yeah actually have to land this plane, as it were, uh, in the in the broader court of public opinion. Uh, otherwise, you'll set back the cause for Lord knows how long. Well, if we take the Republic debate, once that was lost, we've not had people really raise it. No. And one thing about our country is we are very considered, but we're conservative. And it has to be justified for our peers to consider their support for any initiative. People are suspicious of Canberra whenever we do referendums. You, you only have to look at the 44 that have gone up and only eight have succeeded. So the odds of failing are yeah. extremely oh, high. Yeah, well, they're, they're stacked. It's like being a poker player <laughs> and your opponent has got four aces and you're going to no, think that you've got two pairs. Sorry, I'm Irish. Let's not jinx this whole process. <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of the colleagues, last question because I know you've you've got a very busy day and we need to let you go. Um, in terms of the colleagues uh, who are likely to oppose and and cross the floor, I was here when Kevin Rudd delivered the apology in the Parliament. An absolutely electric moment, and I don't use superlatives about political performance lightly. I. You know, it can be quite tough. I, I agree with you. It was electric. Uh, but it was spoiled. Well, not spoiled. That's ridiculous because it wasn't. It was more powerful than any ridiculous petty shows of opposition on the day. But notwithstanding that, there were shows of opposition. It was a it was a big, historic, important moment for the country. And yet some people either refused to turn up or theatrically demurred from the whole process. What would you say to colleagues contemplating similar actions in relation to constitutional recognition? Look, I think the thing that we need to appreciate is we've got a democracy. We have the right to make choices. And if you have a view that is the antithesis of what we're trying to achieve, then that's a choice that we should allow individuals to make. Nothing is worse than forcing somebody to do something that they totally disagree with. You build more resentment that way. The apology, yes, our people noted who was missing, uh, but we've moved on from that. It'll be the same as this issue. If we're successful, people will move on from the fact that anybody opposed. 
Uh, we've done that in the past with the 67 referendum. There were some areas of Australia that voted strongly against the change in the 67 referendum. The only people who raised it are the historians or somebody writing a paper on referenda. Uh, but I see those communities as having shifted substantially from the days when they opposed. So you believe in progress, Ken? I do. I Look, we've made progress on many fronts that are significant societal reform. Same-sex marriage, when that first started, uh, there was a view that it was not going to be successful. But when we did the plebiscite, an Australian said, yes, we support. And I always said, right at the beginning, I remember having a um, discussion with Patricia Cavalas. She asked me the question. I said, look, if we had a referenda or we had a plebiscite and I had a clear understanding that the majority of my electorate supported it, I would have to take a stance to reflect their position in this debate. And Hasluck was one of the ones that strongly supported mm. same-sex marriage. Mm. It doesn't matter what my position or view was. What was important was that I represented the electorate of people who put me in the role in the first place. Mm. Um, and I think that's the beauty, certainly of our party, is we do get the chance. Even See, Section 18C, I was opposed to that. And I in the party room, I said I would cross the floor mm. and vote against it because I wanted to protect not only Indigenous kids and people, but anybody of cultural ethnicity who knows what it's like to be racially vilified. We're seeing it with the Chinese now. Yes, yes. We, we do these stupid things in our society at times that just doesn't warrant the behaviour that we demonstrate. And So on issues, because of my party, I had the opportunity of doing that if I wanted to do it. Mm. That's what I like about our side. And that's not criticising Labor, but that's what I like about our democracy. Mm. Well, we, we could bang on all day. Sadly, we can't. Ken has somewhere else we need to be. So thank you very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this program. Parliament's rolling on for the week. We'll be back with you very soon. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.